This is Killer Intel. Hello, and welcome to Killer Intel. This is your host, L. Cole. And today with me at my beautiful husband, Shelby. So the case we're going to be delving into are the murders and the investigation of the Dracula Killer, a.k.a. the Vampire Killer of Sacramento. Please note, listening discretion is advised as we will be discussing sexual deviancy along with violence and gore. Okay, so I kind of want to set the scene for you. So during this time of when these murders were happening... It was a time of the East Area Rapist, and he was on his 28th rape, and Ted Bundy investigation was just happening. So we're talking about the 70s. Now, on Hulu, I've been watching City of Angels, City of Death, right? <laughs> Sounds like El show, right? It does, it does. <laughs> I haven't heard of this case actually in the episodes yet. I think because they're focusing more on LA and we're actually talking about more Northern in Sacramento. So we're gonna just delve right in there and start with the beginning of the story. And which one are we on again? The East Area Killer? No, we're on the Dracula Killer or the Vampire Killer of Sacramento. Uh, okay. The East Area Rapist was during that time. Okay. So we're not. We're not talking about the rapist. We're talking about something else. But just so you know, California was not the place to be in the 70s. Like if you wanted to see serial killers, there you go. Let's time travel to the 70s. So it's December 29th of 1977. It's a Thursday. And there was a drive-by shooting. It was a murder of this guy named Ambrose Griffin. Ambrose was just a regular guy. He was an engineer for the Federal Bureau of Land Management. He was 51, and he was known to be even-tempered. There wasn't really any enemies known at all for him. He was just a regular husband, regular dude. So he was outside of his house in the driveway, and his wife is looking out, and all of a sudden she sees him just fall. And she thought, you know, he's 51, maybe he had a heart attack. And he and she runs out there, she goes down to the ground, she's yelling for, you know, to call the ambulance. Wasn't until she really looked at him that she saw blood coming out. Now the neighbors heard the shots, but they didn't really think anything of it because where their house was, there was like a creek bed that bordered the property that was used for target shooting. So people would go out there and shoot cans. So no big deal. The investigation actually didn't start until the next day on Friday. And it was kind of embarrassing to the police because guess who found the first piece of evidence? Wasn't them. It was a TV crew. And they found two spent shell casings of a twenty-two. So that was whoopsie-daisy. They needed to kind of border the area a little bit more. So the investigation started. And so this is a time where cops really hit the street. They couldn't really Google and they couldn't Facebook messenger people. So they had to go door to door. By canvassing the neighborhood, the neighbors reported a suspicious vehicle, but they couldn't really agree on the maker model. The police came up with it was likely a thrill crime, again, which is really, really hard to pin down because who's the murderer? There's really no suspects. So they're just kind of like, okay, what do we do? 
The first big break didn't happen till January 9th. They found out that on December 27th, so two days before Ambrose was murdered, a few blocks away, a woman named Dorothy Polensky reported a shot fired into her home. So the detectives go out there and they investigate, and they found a 22 caliber slug from what appeared to be the same gun that killed Ambrose. So, you know, this guy or lady, you know, we don't know yet, but he's probably driving around and this lady, this um, Dorothy, she was the first intended victim because he drove by and just fired into her home. You know, he built up energy and stuff and then he went and he killed Ambrose. So the evidence they got from Dorothy really supported the idea of a random shooter. So they're really thinking, oh my gosh, this is a thrill crime. And in the area that they were in, it wasn't like drive-bys were common. It wasn't a gang-affiliated area. It was just a nice suburban area. I mean, yeah, they had the target practice and stuff, but that was just, you know, what are they going to do? It's the 70s. Back when it was okay. Yeah. Like nowadays. Well, I bet in some areas of the country it's okay, but not here. So we're going to kind of fast forward to January 23rd of 1978, which was a Monday. And this is the day of his next victim. So we're going to begin in the beginning of the day. It's before 10 a.m. And this woman, Janine, was home alone and she saw a strange man walk up to her house. And she's like, oh, my gosh. And he tries all the doors, all the windows. Can you imagine how scary that would be? Mm-hmm. And you're all alone. And then she comes face to face with him in the kitchen window. Like, there's a window separating them. And she looks at him. And it looks like he mouths, excuse me, and walks away. I mean, that's kind of creepy. Good thing, you know, in the 70s, they didn't really lock doors that often. So good thing she had locked all her doors. Or she could have been the first, or the not first victim, the next victim. So around 10.30 a.m. in that same vicinity, now let's backtrack just a little bit. This neighborhood is only a five-minute driving distance from the shooting of Ambrose. So this is still all in the same kind of area. Okay. Okay. So about 10.30, Robert and Barbara Edwards are just coming home from a shopping trip. And they heard someone in their house. And they're like, oh, my gosh. They see this guy exit through the back of the house. And he looks really dirty. And he looks young. So the husband's like, I'm going to get him. And he chases him. But unfortunately, this dirty young guy gets away. So what it appeared to be was an interrupted burglary, but with a weird twist. So they call the cops, obviously. The cops come, and they found that all the jewelry and valuables were semi-organized into bundles, which would make sense if it was an interrupted burglary, right? Like he didn't have enough time to run away or anything. Yeah, but even what burglar really separates the items before they go? Maybe he's like a super organized burglar, and he's just dirty looking because he spends all of his time organizing his burglaries. <laughs> I don't know. It kind of makes sense, right? Yeah, it makes sense, yes. <laughs> Here's where it gets weird, where they knew that they weren't just dealing with your average burglar. They found, so they go into the baby's room and they had a chest of drawers 
and they it was opened and there was all this urination over the baby's clean clothes. Like, yeah, that's not it's not normal. Nope. And then in the child's room, there's in the middle of the bed, the burglar had well, he had defecated on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's got there's something weird going on with this dirty young man. <laughs> he's He's leaving chores for these poor people. He really is. He's like, I don't like how your valuables are organized and I'm trying to help with potty training. Obviously, that's that's the end of the story. Just kidding. So it's 12 p.m. And this lady, Patricia Eastwick, she saw this unkempt man walking down her street. And she just sees him walk right across her brother's porch. And she's like, that's weird. I don't know this guy. What's he doing in my neighborhood? And can you just picture it? It's like suburbia. Everybody's looking out their windows and like, who's this guy? And what's he doing? <laughs> nobody does anything about it. They just peeping time. Nobody does anything. Nobody's calling the police except for, you know, the burglary, obviously. But he's just milling around. So next stop... This guy walks up to the front door of the home of Teresa and David Wallen. And this is where it gets, he he gets in. So he cocks his 22 handgun. He ejects a bullet and places it in the mailbox. I don't, I don't, I don't know the significance or what that was for. Maybe it was like, you know, a killer's calling card. Yeah. I don't know. The door was unlocked and unfortunately Teresa was home alone. And she was on her way to take the garbage out when she ran into the intruder. And he fired at her twice. When she fell, she just spilled the garbage everywhere. I mean, obviously, she's not going to hold on to it. More chores. More chores. (laughs) Yes, he is um, one for chores. And he goes up to her and let's send six inches away, fired into her left temple. So at least it was quick. I mean, it's horrible but he didn't torture her while she was alive. So he takes her body and he drags her to the bedroom and this, you know, kind of gets a little bit hairy. He cuts off her left her left nipple and he cuts her torso open so it's just beneath the sternum to her left hip bone. And the kidneys were severed and were resting on the left side beneath the liver. And her inner organs were tampered with Her pants and underwear were pulled down to her ankles, but there's no evidence of sexual assault. So I'm not sure if he just needed to do that to get to her organs. Not sure. There was a lead pencil near the body, as well as a book of matches, a crumpled up yogurt container. And it's kind of gross because this yogurt container was covered with blood on the inside and on the outside. And there was ringlets of blood on the floor. And the police also noticed that there was diagonal patterns from shoes, from the soles of the shoes. Mm -hmm. About 5 p.m., her husband David comes home, and that's who found her. So it was between 12 p.m. and 5 p.m. she was murdered. So the investigation starts, and, you know, they couldn't really blame the husband because he was at work, and he's the one that found the body. But turns out the husband has a crazy ex-girlfriend. And they're like, ooh, suspicious. I think it's her. And she was known to be bitter. And she claimed to have been in a quote-unquote devil's cult. 
But after reviewing her activities, it didn't really pan out. She wasn't the murderer. But the family believed that it was somebody Teresa knew because a German shepherd was home at the time of the murder. And they're like, this German shepherd would have attacked an intruder. Like, nobody's getting past him. But, you know, animals are animals. And sometimes when there's state of shock or you don't really know how an animal is going to react until they're put in a situation. Mm-hmm. So it could have been anybody. So days following Teresa's murder, there was sightings of this strange man reported. On the 24th, so her murder happened on the 23rd. So the next day in the nearby neighborhood, a disheveled man was knocking on doors asking for old magazines. So he's going around, knocking on doors. Hey, got any old magazines? And he looks like he doesn't belong in the neighborhood. He just kind of smells bad. He's dirty. But again, different times. So people actually answered the door and would give him old magazines. And he didn't hurt anybody when he was doing this. On the 25th, a strange man. So this thing, this is what the reports are coming in. So this, they keep getting this weird, strange man. Bought two lab puppies and the weird part about it was the people that were selling the lab puppies, like, this guy was really weird because he didn't care about how the puppies looked or if they're male or female. Like, usually people that want dogs for pets care what they look like. I mean, sometimes they'll take either or, but they usually care. But they sold him the puppies anyways. Later, they found one of their puppies in the litter dead on their rear patio, and this puppy was shot in the head, and its stomach was split open. So they called the police. They're like, dude, something was weird going on. And that's the only way the police found out. It was because this puppy was found, police were called, then they hear about this strange man. Mm-hmm. They actually did an autopsy. It showed a 22 was used, and the pup had been tortured, and the internal organs were removed. Who does that sound like? The last victim. The last victim. Yeah. Yeah. On the 26th, more sightings are coming in of this strange young man, ringing doorbells, asking for magazines. And this was really frustrating to the police because they knew all the places he was, not where he currently was. So they were just one step behind him. On January 27th, 1978, this is when the murder of Evelyn Muroth, who's 38, Jason Muroth, who's six, Daniel Meredith, who's 52, and David Fiera, who was only 22 months. These will be his last victims, so that's positive. So we're just going to go over the day of what happened. It's 9.05 a.m., and Jason is supposed to go on a snow trip with his neighbor at about 10 a.m., Sounds really stereotypical of suburbia, right? Like, that's what kids do. They go on snow trips. Evelyn, who's the mom of Jason, so Jason's her her son, she calls a neighbor to see if they can leave for the snow trip at a later time so she can rent snowshoes for Jason. So he's prepared. The neighbor saw a red station wagon, which was okay, because this station wagon was Danny's, who's Evelyn's friend and godfather of one of the boys. She saw Danny leave the house and drive off, and she just assumed, hey, he's just getting the snowshoes. We're going to be heading out pretty soon. Everything's going to be totally awesome. It's 10.30 a.m. The neighbor noticed the station wagon was back, 
and was parked facing the garage door, which had been left open since 8.30 a.m. when Evelyn mowed the lawn. I know you're probably thinking, snow trip in California, right? Yeah. Yeah, they're probably going to Tahoe. So I got to drive a bit. Yes. So they want to leave early so they can have a little time in the snow. That's where it's coming. We're not, you know, it's not Wisconsin where it snows all the time. You actually have to travel for it. So the neighbor who's getting, who's going to go on the snow trip, she started to get worried because it was really unlike Evelyn to be this late without notifying her. Because remember, she even called at 9.05 in the morning saying, hey, we might be a little bit late. But now it's carrying on past 10.30 and no news from Evelyn. So this neighbor contacts other neighbors because they all, you know, they probably have a phone tree or something to see what's going on. Have you heard from Evelyn? Nobody had heard from Evelyn, but she's like, you know, everything's probably fine. I'm just going to take off. I'm just going to go on the snow trip. My kid's waiting. It should be fine. So Nancy Turner comes home and she's another neighbor who is really close to Evelyn. She hears through the grapevine, that nobody's heard from Evelyn. She's like, oh, no, no. And she takes matters into her own hands. Not my Evelyn. Not my Evelyn. (laughs) She marches right up to that door and she knocks on the back door and she opens it up and walks in. Because she's like, she's my friend. We're really close. I'm going to find out if she's okay. She immediately comes out and she's yelling, there's blood everywhere. And he's on the floor. Call for help. I don't know which neighbor call, but a neighbor call. I don't know if they're all outside. <laughs> like, Nancy's going in, guys. There's going to be something happening. Get outside. <laughs> Anyways, so it's 12.43 p.m., and the sheriff's deputy, Ivan Clark, arrives. And he's just thinking, you know, it's just going to be a routine stop. Maybe it's a drunk dude, just, you know, a little disorderly conduct. It's going to be fine. And he's not too worried. And he gets out there and... All the neighbors are out. (laughs) They're just milling about. And it reminds me of the neighborhood I grew up in in California. Everybody came out. If there was gossip on the street, everybody knew it. If there was cops that came into our little cul-de-sac, everybody was outside to see what's going down. So I could just picture it. Everybody's outside for the drama. So the deputy goes in and to go discover what's going on. And that's when he learns it's not just a routine visit. He sees the man lying on the floor and he kneels by him and then he sees a gunshot wound to the head. So he's not alive. He checks. He's he's dead. And he looks up from the body and down the hall and he saw the blood all over the bathroom floor and seemingly bloody water in the bathtub. There's no body in there. He goes into the master bathroom bedroom and he sees a woman's body on the bed. She's naked. Her legs are spread out. Her abdominum is cut open from sternum to lower belly with the internal parts just hanging out. Now, the deputy had seen the video of Teresa Wallen. So he was in a patrol briefing and he made the connection immediately. He's like, this looks like Teresa's murder. I'm not touching anything. I am just a deputy. I'm getting out of here. I'm going to call dispatch. So he calls dispatch and, you know, of course, this poor deputy's luck who thinks it's just going to be routine, easy peasy. He calls and he can't get through. It's all garbled. They're in a dead zone. Nice, nice. I know. And he finally does get through. Thank goodness. Homicide arrives. After he's done with dispatch, he seals the scene. He's like, nobody's getting in. We're waiting for homicide. So he did his job and he did his job well. 
When homicide arrives, they find two 22 shell cartridges on the living room carpet by the man. So same gun as Teresa. Mm-hmm. Same gun as Ambrose. And same kind of gun that did the drive-by with Nancy and the puppies. We can assume so because they didn't really have a catalog of ballistics back then. Right. They're assuming. I mean, it all kind of matches. Yeah. little matchy-matchy going on there. So they go and they go into the bathroom and they see the same thing the deputy did, except there's woman's clothing lying on the floor. They go to the master bedroom and they see a butcher knife, which was stained red and was next to the woman's left hand. And a carving knife was on the bed next to her head. So obviously something's happening. And this woman, this is Evelyn. She had a single gunshot wound to the head above her left eyebrow. Her right eye was partially carved out and a portion of her liver was removed. The attack seemed to be directed at particular organs. Not like a slashing, like psycho, or however the sound goes. But... It looked like he was doing something with a purpose. This one was a little more escalated because there was actual sperm found in the rectal cavity as well as knife wounds. So he is escalating what he is doing to his victims. On the other side of the bed, they found the body of her son, Jason. He was fully clothed with a shot in the head. They found diagonal pattern shoes, blood stains. So same pattern of shoes they found at Teresa's murder scene. There's also a series of rings in the carpet next to Evelyn's body. There is rings on the floor next to Teresa's too. So something's happening. In the investigation, they found that Daniel, the friend of Evelyn, Mm -hmm. the godfather, he had left the house. And when he came back, that's when he probably ran into the intruder. And Daniel's station wagon was missing. So they have a lead now. Like, we got to find that station wagon. They also found in the investigation that Evelyn was babysitting her nephew, David Fiera, a 22-month-old baby who was not found in the house. They located a bullet hole in the pillow of the crib with a lot of blood and a 22 caliber shell casing. Most likely, the baby is not alive. They're hopeful because... You know, you always are kind of hopeful for that. Odds were against it for David. The pathologist noted that both female victims have essentially the same organs cut and pulled from their abdominum cavity. Dr. Rooney wrote in his report, it seemed to facilitate getting at blood in their abdominal cavity. So something, this killer is trying to get to where there is a pool of blood. Okay. It's January 27th now of 1978, and it's 5 p.m., and they've located the red station wagon. And it's at this apartment complex, Sandpiper Apartments, which is still pretty close to the scene. It's Everything that's happening is within a five-minute driving. Or if you're doing it as the crow flies, it's about a mile, like a mile block. So if you're driving, five minutes. If you're walking, it could take less time. So they locate the red station wagon, but there's not many leads. Note, though, that the Sandpiper Apartments, right next to him, is another apartment complex. And what's separating them is a gate. So it's just a wooden gate that you can come and go. Mm -hmm. But there's two large apartment complex, and they focused on the Sandpiper ones. They did notice, while they're searching the station wagon, there was this dude watching them. And they're like, ooh, suspicious. I'm going to follow up on that lead. And this is a guy named Keith Roberts. But 
just turns out he was a curious bystander and he answered all the questions the police had and all his alibi checked out. So he was just, I guess, nothing better to do that day than to watch. Kind of makes sense. All the neighbors are coming out. Yeah. And you see police cars, you come, you watch. Exactly. If you see a tornado, what do you do? You watch. You watch. So now the detectives are, you know, they want to try anything to catch this guy. He is escalating quickly. This is all within a week span that he killed Teresa and then Evelyn and her whole family. So just a short period of time. The police in Sacramento, they don't want it to be another L.A. thing where there's just everybody's scared. There's serial killers everywhere. They want to get this guy. It's like, we're going to try this newfangled thing the FBI came up with. We're going to do profile, a psychological profiling, because it's it's new at this time. And this is when they review the geographical area. Remember how I said it's all within that one mile? Mm-hmm. That's when they figured that out. That's all within this small area. So I wonder if the guy lives there is local, because that would make sense to them. The profile they came up with was that he was a white male in his 20s. There was two reasons they came up with the white male. One, because they've gotten all these reports of this weird-looking man around. Just so happened that the weird-looking man arrived and all these killings happened. So he's looking a little bit iffy there. And the second reason was the area was predominantly white. Anybody of color would have kind of popped. Yeah. And they hadn't gotten any reports. So, like, it's a white dude, young, we're going with it. And they were thinking it was most likely schizophrenic. And they came up with that because the psychosis seemed to be withdrawn from a reality. What he was doing to his victims didn't really make a lot of sense. And the murders and crimes were done during the day when people were just milling about. And he did no effort to hide his crimes. He wasn't trying to be sneaky. He just hasn't been caught because they just have to find out who he is. That's it. They also guessed that he was a loner, unmarried, working at a menial job at best, because, again, happened during the day. It's not like they had telecommuters back then or people that worked from home that much. So he probably either didn't have a job or just a part-time job, something. Guessed that he had limited social skills, And he wasn't a con man or a manipulator because he didn't really have any prolonged interaction with the victims. It wasn't like he was trying to get anything emotionally from talking with them. Just come kill, get a pool of blood and out. Yes. Yeah, that's that's the basics of it. That he could drive, but his main transportation was walking and that he might have been recently released from a mental institute because his crimes were happening in such a short span of time. Now, the police began canvassing. They were doing their job. They were knocking on doors. They were trying to get as much information as possible from the community. Now, it's January 28th. Police learn of an odd encounter with a man feeding the description of the weird, quote-unquote, weird man wandering the neighborhood on the same day in the same vicinity that Teresa was murdered. On January 23rd. So they got this report in. Some lady had an odd encounter. Now here it is. So it was about 1130 a.m. on January 23rd of 1978. Nancy Holden ran into this dirty looking man at Pantry Market. She's just doing her grocery shopping. And she's like, ew, who's that over there? Not looking so familiar. And he approached her asking her this odd question. 
were you on the motorcycle when Kurt was killed? Like, what? She did, though, have a boyfriend named Kurt that died on a motorcycle accident. So it was ringing some bells, but she... Coincidence? I think not. I think not. So she's trying to ignore this guy. She's like, um, uh, let me just push my shopping cart and go. But he's persistent. She then recognizes him from high school. His name was Rick or Richard Chase. And he had once dated her older sister, but back then he was neat and quiet and just a normal dude. So what happened to him? We'll talk about that later. <laughs> so his appearance had drastically changed. Uh, his hands, his fingernails were stained with dirt and it was smeared all over his face and he just, he just smelled really bad. And Nancy's like, I need to get away. I need to go home. She quickly pays. She's not done shopping, but she's like, I'm going to beeline it for the registers. She pays for her stuff. She heads to her car, throws all of her groceries in there, gets in her car, locks her doors. And she did it just in time as Rick's coming up and he's trying to get in Mm. and he wants a ride. And she's like, heck no. She I don't know if she peels out. I'm going to say she peels out because I like that that part of the story. She gets out and she's gone. So now the police have a name. That's why this is crucial. They have a name that's attached to this report of a weird looking man. So they pull Richard Chase's record and they found that in 1973, he was arrested for a concealed weapon. Happened to be a 22. In 76, he was a missing person from American River Hospital, and he was listed as a violent mental patient. In 68, he was a suspect in a shooting. 67, 68, and 71, he was arrested for possession of marijuana. That's not one of the big deals. In 77, now this was an odd arrest, and I kind of think if he were detained after this one, it might the story might have been different. So it's August 3rd of 1977 at Pyramid Lake, Nevada, on the Walker River Reservation. The Bureau of Indian Affairs are notified of a possible abandoned truck. So they go out there and they're like, hey, what's going on? It's a 1966 Ford Ranchero with expired Florida license plate tags. So like, oh, expired. Let me take a peek in to see what's going on. From Florida in Nevada? Yeah. Yeah. Suspicious. So they look in and they see two weapons. They see a 30-30 level action Marlin rifle and a 22 semi-automatic rifle. And they see a pile of men's clothing in the truck and there's bloody tennis shoes. And then they look even further into the truck and they see this white plastic bucket with a raw, perfectly shaped liver. And they're thinking, oh my gosh, that's large. That looks human. Something weird's happening. So the tribal officers get out their high-powered field glasses and they start scoping. And they're scoping. And they see this man sitting about half a mile to the south, perched naked on rocks. Like, bingo, (laughs) that's our guy. And when the man noticed the officers moving in his direction, he just began to run in the opposite direction. He's not going to get away because these are tribal officers. They can just get in whatever vehicle and just get them. So they do. They apprehend him, and they find that his name is Richard Trenton Chase. He's 27 from Sacramento, California, and he has blood just smeared across his torso and his face mimicking 
Indian war paint on an Indian reservation. Lovely. Yeah. He's about 145 pounds and he's six foot. So that that needs, it's like, hey, can I take you McDonald's? You look really hungry. Yeah, I'm gangly. Yeah. You want to feed him. Have some beans and rice. <laughs> it's a lot of bread. And his skin, they said that it looked almost waxen, like he never saw the sun or rarely saw the sun. And when he was questioned about the blood, his responses were confused. He first said, it's seeping out of me. Or he was like, oh, the blood is from a deer I shot in May, which was three months ago. And the blood looked fresh. It's like, oh, yeah, something's wrong with you. They arrested him for federal gun law violations until they got the results from the liver. Because like, hey, I'm not going to deal with this crazy dude if I don't have to. We're going to see, is it human? If it's human, we'll keep you, obviously. If not, we'll let you go. So it turns out to be a cow blood and liver. So he was released. You know, he didn't get any help, mental health help there. I don't know if it's different on the reservation. I don't really know the laws there. But... You know, I, you want to think that maybe the the gun law violation should have stuck. Maybe get some help in jail. Maybe, or at least find out where the liver came from. I mean, who's the owner of the cow? Who's <laughs> the owner of the cow? Did you have authorization from the cow to take its liver? <laughs> we need to know. Or, you know, I wonder, too, if, you know, it's the 70s. Maybe they just thought he was on a bad acid trip. That could be. And just clean him up, send him out, let him get sobered up. It'll be fine. Well, it wasn't. Because in December of that same year, that's when Ambrose died. So it was really, it was August. He's arrested on the Indian reservation. And in December is when he starts his killing spree. So after pulling Richard's criminal history, obviously it's like, hey, this guy looks pretty... Pretty much, it kind of fits our profile. I think this is our guy. So they go out to the apartment complex. Again, remember the Sandpiper Apartments where the red station wagon was? Yes. It's right across, right next to Sandpiper, that wooden gate separating it. Right on the other side of the gate. Yep. That was the other apartment. So they were so close. They can almost taste it. They contacted the manager just to make sure they can get into the apartment if need be. So they go up there, they're at apartment number 15, and they're knocking. You think Richard answers? Of course not. Of course not. They're sitting there and they you know, put their ear up. I'm like, oh yeah, somebody's in there, we can hear. So they heard movement. It's like, we're gonna trick them. There's the police officers in front, and they're like, hey, we're going to go. I guess he's not home. You know, see you guys later. We'll check back maybe tomorrow. And they kind of hide. Like, we're just, we're going to wait for him to leave. Goodbye. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) See you later. (laughs) Of course, when Richard thinks the police leave, he pops out. He's like, oh, my gosh, I got to get out of here. And he comes out and he's carrying a box. So the cops see him and they're like, you're going down. And they're, you know, a chase ensued. He throws the box. Turns out it's a just a bunch of bloody rags. He throws the box and they get him and they start the scuffle and they finally get the handcuffs on him. And 
you know, was really lucky for the police because he was carrying his handgun. He had his 22 on him. So they got him down without any incidents. Like, nobody got hurt. Thank goodness he had the box. Thank goodness he had the boxes. Maybe he would come out guns a blazing. Mm-hmm. So when they arrested him, he was just really skinny and undernourished looking. And there was a comment that was made, they just look like a wild animal. And he was just covered in blood. Like, ew. But he just smelled horrible. In his back pocket, they found Daniel Meredith's driver's license and pictures of Evelyn and Jason, his last victims. Mm-hmm. And he was also carrying rubber gloves that appear to have dried blood on them. So he likes to reuse and recycle. In the back of the squad car, the deputy heard him mumbling and could I make out, my apartment is a lot cleaner. I didn't do anything but kill some dogs in there. I, I don't know what the laws were in the 70s, but nowadays you can get in some serious trouble for animal torture or murdering animals. So maybe not back then. Maybe it wasn't as big of a deal. So they bring Richard back to the police station and they interview him. But again, he's sticking to his story. He's like, I didn't kill anybody. I just killed some dogs. That's what the blood is. My apartment's a lot cleaner. All right. So while they're interviewing him, they go into the apartment. They get a search warrant and they get into the apartment. And almost everything was bloodstained. <laughs> Doesn't make how you, could it not be? How could it not be? And it makes you wonder what it looked like when he was saying, it's a lot cleaner, isn't it? Yeah. Like, what did he what did he clean? I don't I don't know. Blood everywhere. It's on the walls, it's on the bed, it's on the tub, everywhere. And they noticed there's pictures of human anatomy on the wall and Right underneath it, there's a little carpet, and it was just saturated in blood. Almost like he was sitting there doing something, looking at the picture. And in the medicine cabinet, they found a glass stained with blood inside and out. Remember the yogurt container? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Inside and out blood. So he's up to something. And they found small pieces of bone in various areas of the kitchen, the electric blender was just stained with blood inside and out. Yeah, yeah. And the whole apartment was just, the smell was horrific. I, I kind of feel for the police that had to go perform the search warrant because they have to be so meticulous in what they're searching. And to be inside of that smell of that rot. I mean, maybe they could put Vicks underneath their noses. In California, January temperatures, you're looking 50s, 60s? Yeah, not too hot. Not too hot, but warm enough, not freezing the blood. Yeah. So it stunk. It stunk. Just like him. Unfortunately, when they searched the apartment, they did not locate the baby. So they're still looking for the baby. And on January 29th, Richard was finally arrested. That was about one month after the killing of Ambrose, six days after the killing of Teresa, and two days after the murder of Evelyn, Jason, Daniel, and David. So the cops really hit the pavement on this one. It was hard with Ambrose to get him right away because it was just a Mm drive-by, and they had no real evidence to go on. But 
when the murders of the women started happening, they were able to really find this guy, which was wonderful. And he was booked into the county jail. And it is important to note that the psychological profile was not instrumental in finding him. It was a tactic training from the FBI that proved to be instrumental in catching this killer. So them hitting the pavement, doing all the questioning, getting the word out, that's how they found him. At least they tried a new thing. They did. They did. And once the case was closed, they actually handed it over to the FBI, who used it as, and I don't know if they still use it, but they did. They used it as a classic example of a disorganized offender. So the information actually is being used for educational purposes, which is good. So although Richard was apprehended, the search for David Friera, the baby, it still continued. And they used dogs and they did everything they could to try to find this baby. They searched all the garbage pails and dumpsters trying to find this baby because they wanted to give him back to his family to have them either mourn or be happy. Most likely mourn after looking at the apartment. It's covered in blood. Does not look like somebody who would keep a baby. It wasn't until March 24th of 1978, so three months after Rick was arrested, that David's body was found. And it was discovered by a church janitor in a cardboard box. So the janitor was actually coming out, and their dumpster was not one of the ones that were searched because it was kind of away. It doesn't get picked up all the time. So it wasn't on the main drag. Sure. So they didn't even know about it. And then that's where they find the cardboard box, and the baby was decapitated and partially mummified. So he was out there for a little bit. Rick did have a jailhouse confession. I mean, a lot of people do. They like to talk about their crimes in jail. So he told a fellow inmate that he had to do it as he needed the blood because he had blood poisoning. And he was he was tired of hunting animals for their blood, so he decided to try humans. And he admitted that the choice in victims was random. He actually took the baby home, drank some of the blood, and when he was finished, placed the baby in the garbage. When he did his jailhouse confession, they hadn't found the body yet. So when they heard the jailhouse confession, they tried searching again, but they just got lucky that the janitor found it. Sure. And the jailhouse confession was important because Richard wasn't talking to the police in interviews. And it kind of shed some light on his psyche. There was more investigation done on his past to help understand the methodology behind the killings. So we're going to kind of go back into Richard's past to see what happened. Because his high school friend said he was just a normal dude. How did he turn out to be this guy that was killing people and drinking their blood? How does that happen? So there's no, for his history, there is no instance of child abuse. There's no reports. His father was known to be strict, but not abusive. And his family had his mother, his father, and his younger sister, who was about four years younger than him. And there's no reports of significant sibling rivalry. It was just an average family that he was born into in 1950. There was some talk, though, about when he was 10 years old. So in 1960, his mom told a neighbor, seems like everybody's telling their neighbor, Mm -hmm. she told her neighbor that she had noticed that he had buried the cat 
among the flower beds. It seems pretty. Yeah, seems pretty odd. <laughs> Does not seem like a natural ten-year-old. And then the neighbor said that there was several cats that have gone missing in the neighborhood oh. around that same time. So this kind of behavior might have started back when he was ten years old, but he was still considered normal because the mom was just like, "Oh, the cat's dead." Didn't get him any help. Just left it at that. Just gossiped about it. So let's fast forward to when he's 14. His parents had split for a short time in 1964, but they reconciled. Given that they split, there was information that they had a lot of, there was a lot of fighting and stuff in the household. So it wasn't a very happy home because the parents were always fighting, you know, separated and reconciled. So it wasn't the best environment for the kids. However, there's no evidence of physical abuse, just verbal anger. And Richard had, there's reports that he had many friends and he was fairly popular when he was 14. He was neat, well-mannered and well-groomed. Nothing sticking out like a sore thumb. It was in high school that things started to go a little askew for him. As high school is progressing, he was barely passing and he was just growing, a growing defiance of authority. And he had no accountability. And he blamed others for his misfortune or bad luck. Even his appearance started to deteriorate. He just stopped taking care of himself and he would start having fewer and fewer friends come by. His mom was like, mm, no, he's fine. He's just he looks like everybody else. He's just a hippie. He's fine. So they didn't really get much help for him. When he's 16 in 1966, he's arrested for possession of marijuana. Now, this shows his take on how he reacts to this shows his accountability level. Instead of feeling shame about what he did, like, oh, my gosh, I got arrested. How embarrassing. You know, like mm -hmm. most kids, he was angry at his dad for not hiring a lawyer. Like, how dare you? <laughs> yeah. In 607017, he's caught stealing a bottle of liquor from a neighbor. And he showed no embarrassment, no remorse. So it's just kind of like, oh, stole it. Caught me. Whatever. I'll get it next time. Like, no big deal. He did have two steady girlfriends in high school, and both were two years younger than himself, which is not abnormal. It's kind of typical in high school to have younger girlfriends. What is not typical is one of his girlfriends tried several times to engage in sexual activity, but it wasn't possible as he was unable to maintain an erection. So you can imagine what that would do to a 17-year-old dude. He's trying to be intimate, and he can't stay hard and this isn't the only girl it happened to with his other girlfriend and another girl all reported the same things and you know they were all talking to each other back then too heck yeah they were so that's gotta be kind of hard for him it was so hard that when he was 18 and he was a senior he actually went to a psychiatrist who specialized in adolescent problems and this is where he talked about you know the problems of impotence his family drama and just his emotional stability. And Richard later said that the psychiatrist told him that his impotence could be linked with suppressed anger. What he didn't tell him is now that we find out 
a lot of times people with sadistic behavior, they are able to maintain an erection when it comes to pain and gore and things like that. So that might have been happening here. He just didn't know it at that time. So now we're going to go to when he's 20 years old. He finally moves out of his parents' house and he moves in with two female roommates. And the roommate's like, dude, this dude is a slob. He's dirty. He smells. He rarely showers. He rarely washes his clothes. And his behavior is just weird. He's got no friends. He's just odd. So one of the examples of the weird behavior that they gave was he had boarded, closed the door to his bedroom, and he knocked a hole in the wall of his closet. And he did this because he said that people were sneaking up from him from the inside. So there's something going on. No, no, I hear that happens. (laughs) (laughs) Two people that suffer from schizophrenia, yes. He was also using any drug that came his way. So he dabbled in anything that he can get his hands on. And maybe that was for self-medicating purposes because people with mental health illnesses, when it's undiagnosed, use substances as a means to cope with life. So that, that could have been going on. I'm not a doctor, but it makes sense to me. So now he's 22. Well, obviously the girls move out or they try to make him leave. He's like, I'm not going. So like, we are out. This guy is way too weird for us. I don't blame them. I would have been out right away too. So they move out. He ends up going out to Utah and he's arrested for a traffic violation. His dad put up the bail money and they returned him to California. And again, they noticed that his physical appearance is just getting worse. Like what's going on with him? And he complained constantly of physical ailments. For example, he said that his stomach was backwards and his heart frequently stopped beating. That's, I mean, that's scary. Yeah. Well, it turns out the doctors couldn't find any of it was true. Like he was just, I don't know if he was making stuff up. It's just what he thought was the truth. So at this time, his parents officially separated. And in 1973, when he's 23 years old, that's when they divorce. And Richard went to live with his dad. And he still continued to complain about physical ailments. So his dad, they're taken to the doctor. And the doctor did diagnose him with hypertension and actually prescribe some medication for him. For somebody like Richard, though, this did not have a positive effect on his psyche because now he's like, there is something wrong with me. I told you there's something wrong with me. And he's like, I can't work. I can't do anything. Something's wrong with me. He was, though, able to help his father remodel. And his father is like, dude, Rick, you can help me remodel. Why aren't you getting a job? And Rick's like, oh, nope, can't work outside the home. I can't work for people other than family because that'll help his stomach. I don't know. So his dad's like, I can't deal with you anymore. Go live with your mom. So he moves in with his mom and sister and his mom sees him. He's just bone thin. And his sister's like, oh my gosh, he's spooky. And she's like, he's got violent temper tantrums that actually scared her. So he moves out and he moves in with his grandmother. This is all in 1973. So he's moving about quite a lot. He moves in with his grandmother and he actually drove the bus for a 
a developmentally disabled school because his grandma ran the school. So he started driving the bus for it. And I don't think anything happened because there's no records of anything bad happening. But he still continually complained about physical ailments, again, unfounded by doctors. Doctors only found him to be hypertensive. That was it. On December 1st, he was admitted to the American River Hospital, claiming his heart and kidney stopped working, his stomach hurt, his pulmonary artery was stolen, and his blood had stopped flowing. That seems like a psych council right there, if I ever heard of one. Yes. And the doctors are like, I can't find anything wrong with him physically. He's fine. He's skinny. He's malnourished, but he's fine. So they sent him to the psychologist, and they indicated that he was suffering from a chronic paranoid schizophrenic condition. And then he just moves back in with his mom. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. (laughs) So when he's 23 to 26, he's living with his mom, and he's just... just going downhill. You don't think he can go any further? He does. He's just deteriorating. He's complaining all the time. And, you know, the more that he deteriorates, the more likely his complaints of physical ailments are going to turn out to be true. Well, not that somebody stole his pulmonary artery, (laughs) but something's going to happen if you're not taking care of yourself. So when he's 26, that's when he qualified for Social Security. When he qualified for Social Security, he's been living with his mom for three years. So he qualifies, and then he's telling everybody that his mom is trying to poison him. I mean, he doesn't have any friends, but he's, like, telling his dad and his grandma that his mom is trying to poison him. And if she ever made any food for him, he would just throw it on the floor. Mm. He's like, I'm not going to eat this. You're trying to kill me. He wouldn't even drink out of an open milk container. So it had to be closed so he knew she didn't put poison in there. Makes sense. To him, yeah. And he even accused his mother of trying to control his mind. And it happened on two occasions. So more than once. So it has to have happened. Yeah, things are not looking good for him and his mom's house. So he moves back in with his father. And he lives there for a short little bit of time. And his father actually moves him into an apartment that his father paid for. And when he's in this apartment, that's when he begins visiting a rabbit farm where he would buy rabbits and butcher them at home. His father thought he was doing better. Yeah, I know. You're thinking, oh, he's butchering rabbits at home. But it it could be fine. He could be making Haas and Pfeffer soup. Mm -hmm. Could be fine. Because his father was like, he's doing better. He stopped complaining about physical ailments. Maybe he just needed to be on his own. Maybe my ex-wife was poisoning him. Who knows? But unfortunately, he becomes sick with blood poisoning. So his dad comes in, and he's just going to check on him. Like, hey, Rick, how you doing? And he sees him just almost dying in the middle of his floor, just completely, the color is completely gone from his face, just so skinny. He's on the floor, just crippled in pain. So he rushes him to the doctor, and that's when they found out that he had blood poisoning. So even the doctor noted that he looked emaciated, pale, and dirty. And while he was in the hospital, this is what he said happened, that he got sick from eating a rabbit that ate battery acid, which seeped through the walls of his stomach. Uh, I guess the old 
rabbit. Or eating rabbits. Yeah, where did the battery, or where did the battery get the rabbit? Where did the (laughs) rabbit get the battery acid? Like Batteries. Obviously, you know, he was working on the car with his little rabbit feet, and he's just going. Yes. So in April, he's admitted again to the American River for a psychiatric study, because they know something is going on with this dude. So he's admitted in April. In May... They started a conservatorship proceedings. Now, you might be thinking conservatorship Britney Spears, right? That's our most recent kind of thing. But in his scenario, it kind of makes sense. This guy's not well. Somebody needs to make sure that he's eating, that he's taking care of himself, bathing. So that's why they started those proceedings. He then transfers to Beverly Manor Skilled Nursing Facility for mental patients. And this is where he earned the nickname Dracula. Why, you ask? Because he just talked about killing animals and drinking their blood all the time. Like He usually didn't talk a lot, but when he did, his favorite subject was killing animals and drinking their blood. Hence, Dracula. In June, that's when his parents were appointed as conservators. And the rule was it would last a year unless they wanted to get it renewed, which, you know, eventually they don't, unfortunately. Once that happens, he runs away from the hospital to his father's house, and his father's like, nah, dude, you need to go back. So he brings back. In 1977, the conservatorship ended, so they did not renew it. And that is when he bought his 22 caliber caliber semi-automatic handgun with bullets. Fresh out of the Institute. Fresh out of the Institute. Well, he's it's fresh out of the conservatorship. My bad. So he's like, I'm free. I'm going to go buy a gun. And he waits the appropriate amount of time. Like in California, you can't get a gun right away. You actually have to wait until everything checks out. So he waits the amount of time and it checks out. So he has his gun, his ammo, and it happened... December of 1977, and that's when Ambrose died. So he buys the gun, and then he goes on a shooting spree. When the cops are looking through the, the records of all the guns purchased, there was a lot because a 22 caliber handgun is very common. It's the favorite among target shooters as well as killers because it's hard to trace at that time, and it was December. Christmas time. So that's why they didn't find they they just they had they couldn't go through all those that information. So now we're going to go and fast forward to the conviction. So we kind of learned about how Richard got to where he was and what he did. So we're at the conviction. And the DA is going to go for the death penalty because look what he did. He kind of deserves a death penalty. But of course, Insanity defense. That's what they're going to use. So they're going to have these different doctors review him and think, is he sane for trial? Or was he sane at the time of the killings? They did find that he was sane enough for to stand trial, which I think I wonder if he's just getting better, getting food. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. And the psychiatrist also found that he was sane at the time of the murders. 
Hmm. So an excerpt from the book, The Dracula Killer, by Ray Bondi and Walt Hecox. A letter from Dr. Beamer, a psychiatrist, to the court read. This is important about his state of mind. My opinion is that Richard Chase is seeking relief from intolerable distress associated with his belief that he was being poisoned to death and that his belief was due to a severe chronic mental disorder. He believed that drinking blood was a possible solution to save him from certain death. But he understood that he was killing people and that it was wrong to kill people. Mm. Remember his jailhouse confession? He was like, yeah, tired of killing animals. So he went to people. That was a choice. So he was sane enough to make that choice. That's what the doctors are, are thinking. So on January 2nd of 1979, the trial begins, and it's for six counts of murder. The prosecution acknowledged that Chase had a history of mental health problems, but he had enough intelligence and understanding to plan the killings and getaways. I don't even know if he, you can consider it planning the killings. I just think he decided to go killing. Was it even getaways, or was it just, okay, I'm done? I think away? he just walked away. I don't think he actually planned it. I think... I think my opinion is that the calculated part was him deciding to go from animals to humans, buying the gun, and choosing to go kill people because he was tired of the taste of animal blood. Yeah. So that's where I think the prosecution should have went. But either way, on May 8th of 1979, the jury deliberated for about five hours and found him guilty of first-degree murder of Ambrose Griffin, Teresa Wallen, Evelyn Muroth, Jason Muroth, Daniel Meredith, and David Fiera. In the second part of the trial jury, they also found that Richard was legally sane at the time of the murders. So he's going down. Mm -hmm. There's not going to be any wiggle room. He's going to jail. Do not pass go. You know, he's, he's there. And in May 17th of 1979, the jury sentenced Richard to die in the lethal gas chamber at San Quentin Penitentiary. So he's, he was going to die. However, on December 26 of 1980, so this is like a year later. So Ambrose had been murdered on the 29th. And almost a year exactly later, Richard is found dead in his prison cell from suicide by overdose or toxic ingestion. How did he do it? So the prison physician prescribed 50 milligram tablets of, I'm not even gonna try to pronounce it, it's just, it's a medication for depression. And Richard would be given daily packets of this medication because that's what they do in prison. They give you little packets so you can't overdose, you can't try to sell your medication, you get your packets and there you go. And the theory is he saved up the daily packets for two to three weeks prior to his death. So he wanted to go. The funny part is, is he's been saying all along that he's being poisoned. And he dies by being poisoned (laughs) from his own hand. So there you have it. That is the Dracula killer or the vampire killer of Sacramento. Not very well known, but he was a killer in the 1970s out in Sacramento, which was a nice little area, a nice little suburb. 
So the references I used were MapQuest because I wanted to see where everybody lived and exactly see how to drive to all these different places that he went and kind of look at it. And then I also really utilized the Dracula Killer book by Lieutenant Ray Bondi and Walt Hecox. And the cool part about this book is that this lieutenant is the one that investigated the case. So there's lots of little wonderful information in here that is a good book to read if you want to know more about this case. Also, I looked in Wikipedia just to see what they had out there, their their little synopsis. But other than that, most of this information came from the Dracula Killer book. All right. Thank you guys for listening. And until next time, bye.